0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship.
1: Hello everybody. We have a captive crowd here tonight that has to come, but then there's those of you who are at your homes don't have to be watching, but I'm very glad that you are. Thank you for tuning in. Um, welcome to, this is the second uh, lecture in Labrie's, um winter term uh, lecture series, and usually what we do is we announce the following lecture so you can know what's, what's coming down the pipe for next week, which is Sarah Chestnut. Would you mind giving your title nice and loud? Uh,
2: the title is The Importance of Paradox.
1: Poetry, prayer, and the life of Simon Peter. Awesome. So Sarah uh, Chestnut has done a lot of, um, was a poet, and has written uh, extensively poems on the life of Simon Peter. So this is, uh, will be. Oh my gosh. Let me see if I can repeat it. (laughs) The importance of paradox, poetry, prayer, Prayer, and and the life of Simon Peter. All right. Good. so um, but the topic tonight is curiosity and this is a topic that i've uh began lecturing on almost almost maybe 12 years ago or something like that and it's it's been rattling around in my head a bit ever since and recently because of the strange times we live in i was asked to give this lecture for the english library without leaving my home and so that was my first zoom lecture which was very exciting and so I thought uh, I might as well use the most revised um, version of this lecture, uh, this term, and do it, do it for this term. So, um, curiosity, every, it, it takes on a different title every time. This time it's a diverse and fruitful Christian virtue. I'm not sure what I'm supposed okay. to do with this. This is not working. It's, make, it's making noises at me, which is, do I just need to do it manually? Echo. Oh, Oops. Okay. So I'm really not going to talk about G.K. Chesterton at all tonight, but uh, he, he is the master of one-liners, quotable one-liners, and he said, "There's there are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people, uh, implying that, you know, this is as much a statement about boredom as it is about uh, <coughs> curiosity, but implying that if, if we don't find the world interesting around us it's not because the world does something wrong with the world it's because maybe there's something wrong with with us um. at Labrie we often talk about the importance of asking questions that's sometimes uh, something we talk about with students when they first arrive um, because so much of what happens at Labrie is engaging with questions um, Labrie was very much founded upon this this as an important thing uh, Francis Schaeffer always talked about you know, striving to give honest answers to honest questions. Uh, so if nobody thought it was important to ask questions, Lebrie would, would not exist at all. Um, and so much of, of learning, I think, I think uh, when you think about it, so much of learning and growing in wisdom is learning how to ask the right questions, uh, the insightful questions that lead to, to deeper insight. So questions are, are really one of the primary ways in which we Explore the world around us. Uh, explore reality, <clears throat> and um, by asking questions and honestly seeking the answers to them, that's the way, that's the way that we learn. Um, curiosity, the topic tonight, I think I really think of it as an underlying quality in people that spurs on the genuine asking of questions. So it's a quality that generates questions in the first place. <clears throat> So, the question itself is the outward audible thing, whereas curiosity is something that lives in people uh, on the level of their desires. It's a kind of a desire. In other words, a genuine question is, is curiosity that's given voice, you could say. When I say genuine question, I'll be using the word like genuine or authentic question a lot because, um, and what's implied in that is that there's such a thing as, as ungenuine questions. <laughs> Uh, sometimes we ask questions because we think we should ask a smart question. Um, maybe we want to sound intelligent. Uh, maybe we want to keep some other true but uncomfortable thing at arm's length, and so we ask questions, all kinds of reasons to ask questions um, uh, that I would call not genuine. But, but what I'm talking about tonight is really genuine questions when we actually really want to know. It's an authentic longing to know, to understand, to be filled And it leads to to really honest inquiry. Uh, So the curious person really wants to know. And that's the way that I'll be using the word tonight. uh, In a wholly positive sense. Uh, At its best, uh, you can think of curiosity as a happy discontent. Because it it tells us, it's as if you're, you're saying to yourself in your heart, there's more to know and understand than I currently know and understand. My current understanding is not satisfactory. Um, There needs to be more. And so curiosity is is sort of an unwillingness to leave it that way. And that's the discontent part. Uh, But curiosity is also a joy that people experience in the searching, I think. And you you can think of examples of this, people you know, or maybe in your own life. Uh, The process of indulging genuine curiosity is a joy. It's not just discontent. Um, The process of investigating the world around us is its own reward to some degree. So in a sense, curiosity at its best is, is closely linked to humility. It's the honest acceptance that you do not know something. There's more to be known, uh, and there's a desire to know more. So, uh, again, this is, this is uh, I'm using the word curiosity in, in a wholly positive sense. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it, um, if you haven't guessed already. Um, uh, but I'm aware, very much aware, maybe we can we can turn towards this in the discussion time, that uh, there's all kinds of ways in which curiosity has been corrupted and twisted and and misdirected in our lives. Um, as with any good gift of God, uh, it can be corrupted and turned into something destructive. So there's all kinds of of unhealthy, I would say, versions of curiosity you think of just sort of morbid curiosity. Why is it that, we, that we're on the highway driving along and everybody slows down to look and see the accident? You know, what is that? Why? Is it a, a deep desire to help somebody in need? Usually not. Um, is to see something, right? Um, we can also be overly curious about people's private lives in a way that leads to gossip. That's, this is a, a another way in which good, a, a good quality that God has given us, gets derailed and misdirected towards something destructive. We can be obsessively curious about ourselves, something we call introspection or or kind of a narcissism, just constantly analyzing my own interior psychology um, ad nauseum. We can indulge our curiosity in a totally idle way and use it to just procrastinate from other things that we need to be doing. You think of the way the internet helps us to do this, you know, the sort of endless investigating things kind of half-heartedly just because it's there, because there was a link. <laughs> it's not because we really care about something, it's just, it's the, it's the level of inquiry that the internet sort of encourages. We need to think about our use of it. But uh, ba- that, that's basically kind of idle curiosity used to distract us from other things we're supposed to be doing, right? Um, all this is very true. We can talk about those um, sort of corruptions. But the point I'm trying to make is they're corruptions of something that's essentially good. <clears throat> and the basic point of my lecture is to sort of uh, build up to this, this idea that curiosity is a preliminary Christian virtue. I'll say more about that uh, later on. But um, in my experience, Christian people are not known as being genuinely curious uh, in a sense of the... Um, this is not, I'm not trying to say that Christian people are not curious, but it's not a reputation we have in the world. <laughs> uh, it's not a stereotype that non-Christian people have of Christians. Oh, they're just so curious all the time. Um, neither do many Christian people think of curiosity as having anything to do with their faith, essentially. Um, another way of, of, of saying the same thing, I was thinking of this on the way down, I was trying to remember, uh, walking down the hill literally. Um How often do we think of a lack of curiosity as a moral problem <laughs> moral issue is that a moral issue I'd, usually not i don 't usually we don 't think of it in that way. Um, I seldom hear hear people talk about curiosity as something to foster and nourish in each other to the glory of God right something that's actually part of our faith and um, something that we should. Encourage in ourselves and in others for the glory of God. How many times have you heard someone say, uh, referring to somebody else, what a godly, curious Christian that that person is, or whatever. Um, when we refer to a person as curious, usually it's we're really what we mean is we're saying the quality they have of inspiring curiosity in me. <laughs> They're curious. It means they're strange, right? <laughs> what a curious person. It doesn't mean, that it do, it's not a quality that they possess wanting to investigate the world. It's, it's what they, it's, they make me wonder. That's, that's what it means. <clears throat> so, um, in other words, it's, it's not often thought of as having anything in particular to do with Christian virtue. It's maybe uh, a quirky... Uh, personality trait that someone has. But is it, is it essential to their faith? Is it an important aspect of their faith? We don't often think of it in those terms. And i, and I my basic point is I'm trying to say that's a problem. If curiosity should be thought of as a Christian virtue. Um, and I'll explain more about what I mean by that later. <clears throat> the idea of what, what, what if curiosity was the, one of the marks of a Christian, along with love and other things. <clears throat> so, um... My outline tonight—that was all introduction, Um, sadly—but the outline tonight is these basic three three points, and I want to start um, talking about how much of a diverse thing it is. It's not—it's not one little narrow thing that we're talking about when we say curiosity. Uh, It does not look the same in everybody. Uh, There are many, many, many different kinds of curiosity. It's a wonderfully broad thing that I'm talking about. So this is a very general lecture, in a sense. Um, curiosity can lead people to investigate different things. Some people are curious about butterflies. Some people are curious about, uh, food from other cultures. Some people are curious about car mechanics. So, curiosity leads us into different topics, of in- different areas of inquiry. But there's also different categories of questions that I think are different kinds of curiosity, uh, correspond to. So, um... There are many curiosities. First, I think, is a curiosity for, for what is there. What is even there? What exists? Uh, and these are, this kind of curiosity leads us to ask those what questions. Um, this is the desire to explore, to observe, to identify, maybe to classify. Think of zoologists or, or people who, who uh, are into taxonomy, like coming up with very specific uh, names for a species, classifying it, uh, or simply watching the bird feeder and trying to name everything that you see, uh, or, or find out what is there. And this is just a very, is a very, very basic human impulse. What's out there? (laughs) What exists? Uh, astronomy. I found this little campy picture of Galileo. Um, what's out there? What exists? Uh, so this is, I'll just call this what curiosity. It's it's not very creative, but w- what curiosity. Uh, it's it's a it's not it doesn't correspond to any one field of inquiry. It doesn't correspond to any one topic. Rather, it's a category of question that could be directed anywhere. Uh, what is out there? Um, there's also how curiosity. How how. <laughs> um, the curiosity it leads, leads us to ask how questions, and this is this is a curiosity for the hidden workings of things. What is going on behind the scenes to make what we see possible? How do we explain phenomena that we observe in the world? And does anyone know who these people are? You've seen? Yeah, that's that's Orville and Wilbur. I forget which one is which. I was. That's that's one of their. Early flying machines. I, when I gave this lecture for the English Library, there's a wonderful uh, colleague there named Josué, who's a Brazilian, and he um, he corrected me because I talked. I refer to the Wright brothers as the first people to to, to create a, a self-powered flying machine, and he actually he confronted me that actually it was the Brazilian. <laughs> it all depends how you define powered flight, and how there's all kinds of fine-tuned. Criteria, but Alberto Santos Dumont was one of the first people to—he was living in France at the time—create a flying machine. Yeah, it's wild. He's going that way. He's going towards the camera, roughly. Anyway, um, how curiosity? This kind of curiosity, I think, is unleashed. On something in the natural world how and it's not just about obviously it's about um, we'll talk about this more later but there's all kinds of different how questions that that uh, that kind of curiosity leads us into um, I keep referring to butterflies I'm thinking of Aunt Anna has done a lot of study of butterflies but um, how is it that the monarch butterfly which is was used to be a more common butterfly than it is now but but still you see them here how is it coming are they recovering yes. Uh, how is it that a monarch butterfly, as a species, completes a migration that takes multiple generations of insects to, to complete? So it's not as if there's one butterfly that makes this whole migration. It takes something like five generations of butterfly to make one mi- total migration. How? <laughs> What's the mechanism behind that? It's, it's not like the adults are teaching the kids how to you know, how to how to complete the migration cycle. Um, this kind of how curiosity is unleashed also on a broken washing machine. How is this thing supposed to work? Uh, what is wrong with it? How can I get it working again? It's the inner workings. It's the mechanism behind what we see... Um, <laughs> And it also uh, manifests itself hugely in the area of manual work, the realm of making and fixing, which is something I lectured on last term, uh, being manually competent, with <laughs> knowing how to do things and fix things and make things. Um, would it be possible to make this out of that? Um, these are all um, another aspect, I think, of, of, a ha- of how curiosity um, it's out of this kind of curiosity, I think, that the scientific method was really born. Look at the what that you see around you in creation and try to form the most likely hypothesis to explain what is happening. So how curiosity is really foundational, I think, to to applied science um, and the process of inventing new technologies. And this is why I have these pictures of these, you know, Alberto Santos Dumont and the Wright brothers. Uh, First of all, how, do, how does a bird's wing work? How, how would it be possible to build something that could actually fly? It's just, it's just a constant process of trying to answer these how questions. How, how, how. And then there's also why questions. Um, curiosity for why things are the way they are. And this is a very different category, if you think about it, of questions. It's a very different kind of, of thing to ask. This leads to questions about purpose and meaning. Is there intent behind what we see in the natural world? Or in the flow of history, uh, what is it for? And these are questions that explore, uh, metaphysical realities very often. Questions that by their nature are beyond the power of science to answer. So, why questions, uh, are, are not just for philosophers and theologians, though, uh, because everyone has a deeply personal version of this kind of curiosity, whether they articulate it or not. Uh, what do I mean? Uh, what is my life for? If I'm a person who, who scoffs at the question, or e- even if even if you are a person who scoffs at the question of what is the meaning of life, many people uh, refuse to take that question seriously. Um, everyone wants their life to have meaning, even if you laugh at that question. Everyone wants to conceive of themselves as existing for a reason of some kind, right? Um. And many people do their best to suppress that desire, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, <clears throat> the personal question of purpose does not go away just because people think it's silly. Or, uh, as Dick has often talked about, uh, many philosophers talk refer to the question, what's the meaning of life, as a category mistake. Meaning and human life, that's like... Um, talking about the color of Wednesday or something like that. They're two different different categories. It doesn't make sense to even combine those two things together in a meaningful way. Uh, And yet, the question doesn't go away. (laughs) It's still there. So why curiosity leads us to wonder about purpose as we look out at creation, as we look at history, and unavoidably as we look at ourselves. And uh, if we do come to the conclusion whatever pathway we take, that the world and history and maybe our own lives actually do mean something, the next question that naturally follows is who? And I'm not really going to talk about this much, ironically, because this is really who is maybe the most important question (laughs) to be asking. But if if the universe really means something, then who means it? Uh, if my life has a purpose beyond just staying alive, whose purpose does it serve? So for purpose and meaning to be realities, there has to be a someone. So as you can see, why questions are very perilous. They lead us sort of inevitably towards who questions. <laughs> um so uh, i 'm really just talking about the three, the sort of the, the what, the how, and the why tonight, uh, and sort of hinting at the, at the who the fact that when we start to ask questions about meaning and purpose, it leads us towards the question who is there <laughs> it 's not just me um, <clears throat> as you can see i 'm choosing to to categorize a whole bunch of things together under the, under the one heading curiosity, think of all the different areas of thinking and energy that, that, that I've just been summarizing here. It's tremendous. It's huge. The longing to know takes many, many different forms. And uh, some of us have more of one than the other, uh, but many of us have different curiosities that overlap and coexist and reinforce each other, so they're not, they, don't, they don't stay in their boxes at all. Um, questions about what and how often lead to why questions, even in very young children. So, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the checkered history that Cur- Curiosity has had. It's not really a history, but just some cultural impressions of Curiosity, at least in the West, um, because it doesn't have a, doesn't have a, a purely positive reputation. And it, it's something that's been criticized for very pragmatic reasons, that it's dangerous. Uh, we're told that the Curiosity killed the cat, and that's sort of a cliché. Uh, I found this funny cartoons. Uh, it's a good thing. I was only mildly curious. <laughs> um,
3: I couldn't resist it.
1: Um, but there's a reason. There's a reason why this this ridiculous little saying has come about. It's because like you investigate too many things, uh, something bad usually happens. <laughs> um, the overly inquisitive come to a bad end. They stick their noses where they don't belong, and they wind up in trouble or dead. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of us sort of have this lingering feeling that it might be true. Particularly, uh, it's been reinforced by by watching like suspense thriller movies, for sure, because um, that uh, suspense movies and th- and thriller movies, like scary movies, just just trade on. This assumption that the curious person <laughs> winds up in trouble. Um, and that's part of the suspense, because we, you know, when the person goes investigating the old house that nobody's been in for years and opens that door, you're like, what are you, what are you doing? Don't you know you're in a thriller movie? Um, it's not, it's not good to be curious <laughs> in those contexts. Um, I think of the, uh, the movie Rear Windows just such an amazing sort of, um, iconic American film. Uh, but it's, it's it's very much about this this guy who's who's laid up with a broken leg and all he can do is look out the back window to across the courtyard to the other apartments, and he's just an inquisitive person. at start and it, and it snowballs, and he witnesses something suspicious. And before you know it, he's you know someone's trying to kill him. <laughs> not to give it away or anything. You should watch the window. Um, so the fear is that the curious person will cross a line and discover something they were not meant to know, right? They will know too much. And you want to just yell at the person, you know, stay at home. Don't open that door. Or uh, be content with your ignorance. Ignorance is safe. So, uh, of course, this attitude towards curiosity predates thriller movies (laughs) uh, and suspense movies. Uh, If you think about old European folktales that still survive today, in addition to being interesting, compelling uh, sometimes creepy tales, they were very often function as cautionary tales as well, right so there 's the monster in the woods uh, whether it 's a witch or a wolf or whatever um, in part those stories were told to keep your kids like in the backyard or or on the path <laughs> in the woods um, don 't just wander off you know into the woods so um, but short of bringing about your untimely death, uh, curiosity can also be, and we're continuing on sort of like cultural impressions of curiosity, how it's been viewed. Uh, it can also be just kind of annoying and inconvenient in other people. When someone else is curious, it sometimes means work for us. Um, this may be one of the reasons for the loss of curiosity in children as they grow older. I think, and this is something that a lot of people have, uh, examined and studied. Um, But, uh, children who are curious about creation very often come home with muddy clothes, or or come home late, or come home with, uh, weird things in their pockets, and, um, it can be discouraging, I think of it as my wife and I, it can be discouraging after you've done three loads of laundry at the end of the day to just, to see just mud-caked clothes walk in the door, and, um... It'd be much less work for parents, at least in the short term, if kids didn't try so hard to find out about the world, you know. And so, sadly, I think this is just one, you know, one reason why maybe curiosity is is suppressed or discouraged in in young people. Um, but you know, I think a lot of us grow up with this impression that somehow my curiosity is an inconvenience to to my stressed-out parents already, and there must be something wrong with it. So this is and this is something that's been uh, pointed out uh, anecdotally as well as as, uh, in much more scholarly ways but the the loss of unstructured outdoor play for children is is a huge loss actually um, for the general health and well-being of children and and curiosity has suffered a lot as a result so isolation from the natural world whether it's because your parents say don't run off and get dirty or whether it's because uh, you just have a device and you're inside looking at a screen all day long whatever the cause, uh, that kind of isolation from the natural world um, definitely saps children of their curiosity. And there was a, a book written a number of years ago by a, a journalist called Richard Louvre called Last Child in the Woods, and he explores there this term he coined called nature deficit disorder, which he's talking about all kinds of developmental and psychological issues that kids uh, deal with uh, because of their lack of exposure to the natural world. So, uh, we see something of an ambivalent attitude, uh, towards curiosity in the writer Rudyard Kipling's children's stories. This is something, um, these stories were read to me when I was a kid, um, and, uh, he has an interesting sort of take on curiosity, at least, at least through these stories. This, this is a, uh, an illustration from the story The Elephant's Child, which I'll just, I'll summarize here because it's, it's, it's an interesting story takes place in the day, oh, we all know that once upon a time, elephants did not have long noses, they just had normal noses, and um, and their noses were, were, were basically useless. Um, there was a young elephant's child who was incredibly curious, uh, who, who suffered no end of pain because of their insatiable curiosity. So every time the elephant's child asks a question of one of his relatives, he gets spanked, uh, but he's not discouraged at all. He keeps asking questions. He, keeps, he, he has this insatiable curiosity. Finally, he, um, he goes on a journey because he wants to find the answer to his most uh, intolerable question. Everybody spanked him for asking this question. Uh, what does the crocodile eat for his dinner? And so uh, you think now, because we've been conditioned to think curiosity gets you killed, um, we think, great, the elephant is now going off to get munched by the crocodile. <laughs> And uh, this is going to be another cautionary tale about staying away from the water and not being curious. Um, The crocodile is going to have the elephant for his dinner, of course, right? Um, But then this is where Kipling has this kind of subversive uh, twist about curiosity. The crocodile does try to eat the elephant, but grabs his nose. And in the battle that ensues on the bank of the river, stretches his nose out until it's a trunk. And he finally lets go, and the elephant's uh, child walks home across the desert, and he finds suddenly that his nose is useful. He can swat flies with it. He picks up watermelon rinds with it, and when he gets home, he pummels all of his relatives with his <laughs> trunk, and then they all go to meet the crocodile in turn because they all want a trunk like this. <laughs> so that's, that's the reason why elephants have trunks. Um, so for Rudyard Kipling, it's, it's uh, curiosity definitely leads you into dangerous places. Uh, it's it's risky, but it can pay, it can really pay off because <laughs> you find out things. <laughs> and um, it's a similar thing if anyone's ever read the the, the short story he wrote called "Rikki Tikki which is about a, a mongoose. And there's a little comment in there where he says the 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 um, the motto of every mother mongoose that, that, that they repeat to their children over and over again is, run and find out. Just go find out. <laughs> um, so, according to Rudyard Kipling, your curiosity might be the death of you, but it's also the only way you'll find things out. And so, this is kind of this prevailing ambivalent attitude that people often have to, to, towards curiosity. I don't think Kipling is the source of it, but he's just sort of an example. Um... There are many, many forces today, more contemporary forces, that undermine curiosity. So uh, we do live in a culture of, of, of passive entertainment. Um, many of the things we feed ourselves make our lives more manageable, more convenient, more entertaining, uh, but make curiosity much less necessary. So whether it's social movie, uh, social movie, social media, or 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 you know watching multiple movies in a row, binging on episodes of uh, Netflix or Hulu or whatever, or playing video games incessantly, uh, all these very very technologically mediated experiences. Um, and for all the benefits of these technologies, they don't actually encourage us to investigate the real world around us very much. Um, they they often. Um, hinder us in some way or make it less necessary or desirable even to to investigate the world around us. So, uh, and this is ironic because in the age of the Internet, uh, we have nearly uninterrupted access to seemingly infamous, infinite information all the time. You know, as long as you have Wi-Fi or a smartphone, um, we have this impression that infinite information is just at our fingertips constantly, right? And you know, superficially one might say, um, this is the curious person's dream. Think of all the things you can investigate and learn. And what question can, I, can you not find an answer for on the internet? Um, it provides us endless opportunities to indulge our curiosity. And of course there's there's some truth in this. I'm not, I'm not like anti-internet uh, most of the time. Um, obviously it's way way easier to research something now than it was forty years ago thirty years ago. Um, the amount of information that's available to us is an incredible gift um, but we have we, we can't be naive about about the um, the medium that we're that we're using and what it actually does to us. Uh, the internet oftentimes presents us with a total paralysis of options um, and competing views about reality so it's it's not as if the Internet is just this 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 source of unfiltered truth, right um, and then what kind of inquiry does does the medium encourage in us, broad or shallow <laughs> and this is something obviously if you 're disciplined and you have a topic you want to research, you can do a deep dive on the internet and learn a lot but um, that's often not how it functions. There's, there's a book, it's, it's actually an old book now by um, a guy named Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, which is a very interesting but, but sobering book about what the internet is doing to our brains by encouraging very, very fast, broad, and shallow um, engagement. And uh, it's worth checking out. And it, it, I'm sure it, um, a lot of the things he said may, almost 20 years ago are, have been shown to be um, more true than, than we, uh, had hoped. <laughs> um, so, um, it actually, it, it, just, just because there's seemingly infinite information available to us does not necessarily mean that therefore we're growing in curiosity at all. Um, and yet, uh, curiosity has been identified by psychologists, particularly sort of developmental psychologists, people who study, uh, the growth of children's, um, psychology, children's brains. Um, it's actually a vital, vital part of human development. It's not just a nice quality to have as an adult. Being curious is, is an aspect of human development from the earliest age. Uh, and anyone, anyone who has spent time with young children will, will know this. Um, it's something that most, most young children have in abundance. Uh, it does not need to be taught to them developmental specialists explain why babies of a certain age put everything in their mouth and this and this is because they're exploring the world around them and this is one of the you know what tools you have as a as a baby that can't even walk it you have your hands you've got your mouth and you're 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 trying to figure out what something is (laughs) what's it for what is this and uh so very often babies will mouth things and that's why you always have to like pick up the legos and the marbles when a baby comes by because you know they're going to Put it in their mouth, <laughs> uh, but that actually is it, developmentally uh, an important thing. Some babies do it more than others, but but um, it's 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 the baby exploring reality, and everything there everything they're experiencing through their senses is contributing to the development of their brain. Uh, and our uh, one of our daughters would did, was like to mouth lots of things: pick it up, look at it, put it in your mouth, take it out, shake it. Bang it on the ground, maybe stick it back in your mouth. This is all, there's just a lot to find out about things, you know. Um, as kids get older, they start to experience wonder at what they see in the world, and as their language develops, they start to ask what and how and why questions. And, uh, and again, um, Rudyard Kipling, uh, wrote these stories, a series of stories called Just So Stories, and each story seems to be an answer to the question of a child. So the titles are, you know, How the Camel Got Its Hump, like, um, or How the Leopard Got Its Spots. How is it that the world is just so, in other words, and, and not, uh, anything else. And, uh, it's just kind of a fun-loving exploration of, of the, of, of the particularities of the world, you know, that, that that kids notice and find wonder in, but sometimes as adults we, we lose that capacity. Um, Kipling is tapping into the children's innate curiosity and, and wonder at the particularities, the just soness of the world, particularly animals. Uh, without this, um, innate hunger to discover, kids would actually never make meaningful contact with the world around them and would never develop into functioning adults. And, in fact, there's, there's, uh, I, don't, I don't have a study to quote right here, but there, there has been studies shown in, in very, very traumatic uh, environments, such as war zones or, or even homes in which there's abuse where, where, where kids have not been able to, to freely be curious and explore. It uh, has huge developmental um, consequences. So um, there's an article by a guy named uh, Bruce Perry, it's, it's an older article now, but, it, but it's, it's been quoted many, many times by people. And it's, ex, it's exploring curiosity as a fuel of development. And he had... Oh, that's terrible. You can't see that. Anyway, you'll just have to take my word for it. Um, he um, <clears throat> conceived of this cycle beginning with curiosity in, the, in a very, very young child... And curiosity obviously leads you to explore the world around you. Exploration leads to discovery, and then there's an interesting one: discovery leads to pleasure. This is very biblical. I mean, this is experiencing dominion, you know, in your in your in a way that's appropriate to your capacities as a young child. Like you, it's it's pleasurable, right? And then, of course, repetition: you do it over and over and over and over again, <laughs> again, again, again until there's mastery, until until uh, a child uh, feels comfortable with, with the sphere that they've explored. And they've learned new skills, they grow in confidence, and in a sense of security where they are, which leads to more exploration. So the, the, the picture is of sort of concentric circles as, as a child develops and grows more mature. It begins with curiosity in the middle, and a very small circle in terms of the sphere in which a child can explore and, and uh, and then outward and outward as a child grows uh, in their experience and in their confidence and in their sense of, of being secure um, but as you can see it's it's sort of a feedback loop that 's what this image is supposed to communicate uh, it leads to more curiosity as those as those those spheres push outward um, and and so it's not a linear process at all it's a very it's a very um, Cyclical process. It's a it's a feedback loop in a way. It, it, the more curious a child is, the more curious they'll become as they as if they're allowed to really explore. Um, and this is really Bruce Perry's point: is that it's it's really necessary uh, to to healthy and normal development. Um, but the thing that starts it is curiosity, which is innate. Um, it, the curiosity isn't isn't. Uh, come about from something else. And seemingly that's what you start with. <clears throat> but now I want to move on. So that, that's just a little bit of a, a, um, a snapshot of how ambivalent we view curiosity, how, how ambivalently we view curiosity in our culture. There's, there's all kinds of negative connotations to the, to the concept, and then uh, all kinds of positive ones as well. I think just anecdotally, most of us can say like the people who we know who are really curious are the most interesting people to talk to that we know. You know, (laughs) it's not just a a, you know a dangerous thing. It's actually a a really beautiful thing. Um, So, uh, but what what about this this claim that it's a Christian virtue? Um, Whoops. Yeah. Um, I have anticipated that you one of you will ask. So where is it in the Bible? Come on. Um, it's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not a Beatitude. Blessed are the inquisitive, it was never said, as far as we know. Um, and of course, you're right. The Bible doesn't talk about curiosity, at least not. Please, if you if you find a passage, please do tell me, because that would be great. Um, but um, I think that curiosity is something that biblical writers and, and and Jesus Himself sort of assumes people have in some measure. Um, And for this reason, it's not often the central point of any one passage, but it's there on the periphery or it's assumed. In Luke 12, I forget whether I had this on the... Nope. Oh, yeah. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And so uh, Jesus is not directly telling people to be more curious about the local flora. Um, that's not the point he's making at that moment. Uh, what he is talking about is, is anxiety and trust in God and the, the flowers of the field are his, his visual aid. He's making a point. Uh, but however, he even though he's not saying be more curious directly, he is saying put your curiosity to work by looking and considering. Um, look more closely than maybe you have before at the lilies of the field. Uh, given God's attentive care for the most beautiful, but also the most fleeting of things in the world. Flowers in a the field. There's almost nothing more beautiful, and there's almost nothing that lasts such a short time. It's like, It almost seems like a waste, God. Um, given God's t- care for those things, how much more will he care for you? So Jesus is making a powerful point about God's care for human beings, but he's assuming that his listeners have a certain level of curiosity about the local plant life, uh, or encourages them to really, you know, go look, think about it, consider it, um, in order to grasp this very, very important theological point about your value to God. And today, um, there are many more forces at work that suppress curiosity, than there were maybe in Jesus' time. This is maybe, you know, this could be contested, I, I assume. I mean, a lot of the people Jesus were talk- was talking to were um, maybe experiencing poverty. And there's all, there's all kinds of uh, real-life situations that, that make curiosity uh, difficult. Um, but Jesus was not dealing with people that spent, you know, 20 hours a day inside looking at screens, um, most of the things that Jesus said were probably said outside. <laughs> Anything Jesus said to a large group of people was said outside. Um, everybody was outside a lot. Um, today, I do think that, that many of us have a much um, less meaningful exposure to the natural world. And perhaps we need to be told to be curious more than people did back then. I don't know. I mean, I'm mean, i not... Um, that, that could be worth discussing. But, um, I would say a similar thing to what we just, um, reflected on in the Gospel of Luke is going on in, in, uh, God's questions to Job at the end of, near the end of the book of Job. This is where the Lord finally shows up and, uh, begins asking Job question after question after question about creation. And it's things that Job uh, had no doubt maybe observed to some degree, but he can't explain. He certainly can't answer the questions. They're, they're impossible for him to understand. Um, but uh, there are things you can imagine he wondered about. <laughs> if Job had never, ever shown any interest in anything around him, these questions would have been meaningless, but they're not meaningless questions. He just can't answer them he's, uh, he's told to consider this. Look at that. Look at, look around you. Look at the, look at the monster in the ocean. Uh, do you tell him what to do? <laughs> um, and so in a sense, there is an assumption that you've already looked around you. You've already considered something about the natural world. Uh, what do I mean by preliminary virtue though? Um, what I mean by that is that I think curiosity provides a foundation for the development of other Christian virtues. It's it's a it's not named as a virtue anywhere, but it's something. It's a foundation um, that if you have it, it makes the, the the flourishing of other virtues come in a much more natural way. So I'll be reflecting on on three broad areas in this section of Christian obedience and. Uh, if they are to flourish in us, these three areas of obedience really require curiosity. So anyone can, can uh, strive to grow in these areas, but, but in the absence of curiosity, it's more of a duty-driven experience. Um, and so these areas are uh, care for creation, love for people, and knowledge of God. It covers a lot, obviously. The Bible has a lot to say about each of these. Um, but I'm just going to start with the first one. And again, I'm, what I'm trying to what I'm what I'm trying to show is that um, curiosity in a human being allows us to respond to these to these areas of obedience much more naturally and with joy, and in a way that would help us grow. Uh, if we have no curiosity, these will be truly uh, difficult, onerous, perhaps impossible tasks. So, care for creation. Uh, Genesis one. No, sorry, Genesis 2, verse 5, and then skipping a few verses to to 15. um, It says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. And then verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And so... um, there's obviously a lot that could be said, but just just briefly, according to these two verses, Adam's purpose for being in the garden in the first place is to work it and to care for it. Um, it was not complete. You know, verse 5 there, the picture that is, is like, it's not complete yet because there's no one there to work it. So there's not this idea of a, of a um, pristine wilderness untouched by human hands is not really... The picture we're given in Genesis. It's it's good engagement between people and the natural world. Um, And this is a fundamental biblical teaching about the role of humans. Uh, We are to be stewards. And being a steward means that the world belongs to God and not to us. We're placed in a position of real authority in the world as image bearers to represent him in creation as stewards. (coughs) So ultimately, it doesn't belong to us. Ultimately, we're answerable to God for our treatment of what is His. And yet, we do have real authority within it. We're not just puppets in the creation. We actually have the ability to do amazing things in the creation. It's just not ours. Um, We're answerable. And this idea is fleshed out uh, more fully. If you go back in Genesis 1, it's actually a, it, it's, it's fascinating to compare the two um, accounts of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, back in Genesis 1, it says, starting in verse 27, So God created human beings in His image, in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And these these uh, words from God have been have come to be known as the cultural mandate. Um, I I have problems with that. Um, that that term, uh, because in the context of this passage, it's really a blessing. It's parallel to the other blessings that God gives to to the other creatures. And so you could say it's a cultural blessing, maybe. It certainly certainly is a mandate. He tells you you have to do this, but it's also um, God blessing them. Um, it's interesting to try to imagine what kind of a world it is that God has set them loose in. Um, it's clearly a place where there is some order... And also some chaos. There was order because God has established many things in creation before Adam and Eve show show up, right? Uh, Adam and Eve were not expected to stroll into a cosmos that was completely chaotic and bring order out of chaos. That was God's job from the beginning, from the very first verses of Genesis. Uh, they were set loose in creation in which Thank God a lot of things had been decided already, right? Uh, Otherwise it would not have been habitable. (laughs) So part of the cultural mandate or blessing, you could say, was to discover how God has already established things. Uh, To explore, there's a theologian uh, named Trevor Hart who who refers to this as prior orderliness. And this is true for any of us as we come to the world, whether we're an artist uh, whether we're in the sciences, whether we just like to hike, whatever whatever it is, uh, we we walk out into a world in which there is prior orderliness. There's a way in which the world has been formed before we ever got there, and if we're to understand it and maybe do something creative with the world, we need to investigate what that orderliness is. How is it? How does the world behave? Essentially, um, what are the rules? <clears throat> And this is really a task of observation. It's a task of trial and error. It's discovery. What is consistent in the world? Uh, these are the what and the how questions we were talking about. Um, and uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of work that could be done in creation even with Adam and Eve when he, when, when, Ad, when he tells Adam and Eve to go out and be fruitful and multiply. Um, there's a lot of order, but there's also things that could be done. It's good. But it's not static in its goodness. There's room for human engagement that will bring more goodness. And so this is where you see a Hebrew understanding of the physical world is very, very different from um, what became known as of a Greek understanding, in which perfection is a static thing. And if you know, if if God said things were perfect in the beginning, then any change would make it less perfect. And so you know, there's an idea of it being very, um, very static. An idea of even heaven being very static, and that's actually not really the picture the Bible is giving us. It's a picture of goodness with room for more goodness, Um, uh, goodness and order, but room for more order, Uh, and yeah, so this is something that Jeremy Begby, who's a, a wonderful theologian and has done a lot of work on the arts. He, he thinks that uh, one of the ways he has explained what art making is is um, essentially bringing forth more praise in creation. Creation is, in a sense, praising God all the time by being what it is, and yet there's inarticulate praise there waiting for humans to articulate and engage with. Um, anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a little bit of a tangent, but we see there's both... Observation necessary and invention necessary from the very, very beginning in this it's implied in the cultural mandate or blessing. Um, to make culture people have to both find out what the world is like and bring about something new. Um, they don't have a how-to manual. They're expected to, to figure a lot out. <laughs> um, so in other words, they have to be curious. <laughs> the cu- curiosity as something in in Adam and Eve is something that's really essential for this whole task to get off the ground, um, particularly the exploring the prior orderliness of creation what how how are the ways in which God has already ordered things uh, that we need to learn about and submit to in a sense before we can do anything ourselves and this this uh we, we've we've done a lot of um, speaking in the last few years about dominion, which, which is um, it's, it's a biblical concept of, of something that God has given human beings uniquely. Uh, and it's a kind of power. It's actually power that is rightly employed. God-given power that's rightly employed. Before the fall, uh, it was a power to look and learn and plan uh, and intentionally affect the world around us and bring more glory out of it. It's, it's another word that you could use is agency we all have the power to affect the world around us, and that's a God-given thing, and a good thing. Uh, Even today, people do have the power to make choices that actually really impact the world. We're not just um, uh, helpless. Um, My point is that at creation, humans are given a task by God that can only really be accomplished by intense investigation, exploration, discovery, which is exercising this, this dominion. Uh, and curiosity is just is just uh, inseparable from it, I think. Uh, this is the first and most and the ultimate unleashing of human curiosity when God says, "Go, you know, look at all this stuff I've made. go out there and uh, and figure it out. See what you find. This is one of the reasons why the word mandate, I think doesn't do it for me because because it's a little bit like, Telling someone to go and do something that 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 they were made to do and that will give them joy, and maybe it's the thing they want to do most, and you say you have to mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's like <laughs> okay <laughs> um, yeah, anyway uh, <clears throat> so uh the first. Task of, of stewardship. Remember, we're talking about curiosity as a, as a preliminary virtue which helps us to actually care for creation. Um, the first task of stewardship, I think, in the garden and for us today, still the same, is to observe. Uh, look closely and answer the basic what and how questions. Notice what is even there. What kind of a world have we been placed in to care for? How do ecosystems function? How do they thrive? How do they suffer? Um, without, without really concerted curiosity and investigation, we will never learn enough about the world to care for it well. And if you study anything about the history of ecology, there's all kinds of horror stories about people trying to, um, to manage an ecosystem before they understand how it works. <laughs> And usually it ends up with with something going extinct, um, uh, or overrun by a species that doesn't belong where it's been put, or whatever. There's 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 lots of horror stories. We can talk about it later. Um, but um, get a bird feeder. That's really the the uh, the first step in all of this. Um, it's it's a helpful way to learn what's even there. You don't have to do as much walking because they come to you usually when you give them food. Um, and again, this is this is sort of the foundation, one of the essential foundations to to Christian stewardship of creation. Um, what about loving people? This is this is the other whole area of obedience that I was referring to. Um, Curiosity can empower us, to, I think, to take the first step towards loving other people. Um, how does curiosity help us to love people? Uh, of course, loving a person, it, it's a much more, it's a, it's a more, um, uh, well, it's a personal endeavor in a way that learning about creation is, is not, maybe, but, but uh, it's much more than accumulating facts about somebody uh, as we come to know them. But uh, asking good questions from somebody is really the, the first active step towards knowing them and loving them. Uh, it's one of the best ways we can show a stranger that we care about them, is to ask them good questions. What does it communicate when we, when we ask careful, intentional questions about somebody, to somebody, we ask them. Um, it means that we're interested in them. Uh, they're not, uh, we're not indifferent to their presence, their existence communicates that we see them, that they're, we value them enough to find out more about them, um, a, a lack of curiosity and indifference, I think, sort of go together in our relationships with people. Suppose if, we're just, if, we're, uh, if we're indifferent, don't really, don't really care at all about who this person is and where they're coming from, then uh, it oftentimes manifests itself as just being total lack of curiosity. I don't care. Why, do, why, why would I want to find out about you? Um, I'm going to attempt to show a video right now, which uh, is really for the benefit of the people in this room, because I don't think we can successfully show it to those of you who are listening on Facebook Live, apologies. I think we will be able to um, post the, the link to it. But this is from a show that, that uh, called Ted Lasso, and it's a really interesting um, conversation that takes place in a bar. Uh, the basic premise of the show is that uh, a very um, wealthy man and woman who own a a English football team, so that's the soccer team to us in America. They they get a divorce, and the wife owns the team, and she's trying to get revenge on her husband, so she tries to destroy the team, destroy the club as best she can by hiring an American football coach to come and coach the team. <laughs> that's Ted Lasso, so he's he's an American and he's he's really campy, and he shows up uh, in this um, to to try to coach this uh, soccer team, and uh, it's all about that juxtaposition, him coming to get into a, into a very different culture. But this is him playing darts with the, the husband that used to own the team, who's a really, um, a pretty much a terrible person. Uh, just to warn you, there's, there's some foul language in this, uh, but try not to let it distract you. It's, it's, uh, it's English swearing, which is different than American swearing. So uh, it's, yeah, anyway. Okay. Yeah, good. Yep. It's a Rupert, y'all take
4: your darts over here pretty seriously, huh? And this and, uh, what's the billiard game y'all do that sounds like a brand of cookies? Snooker? That's it. That's the one. Yeah, boy, I'd love to curl up on a couch under a weighted blanket, watch You've Got Mail, and devour a box of Snookers. <laughs> See what you got here. Hey, there it is. Do you like darts too? Oh. Okay, I'm more of a, you know, a cornhole man myself. Oh. Huh. How about a game? I mean, we could you know, maybe wager, say, 10,000 oh. oh. pounds. Well, as my doctor told me when I got addicted to Fettuccine Alfredo, that's a little rich for my place. <laughs> uh, how about this? If you win, I'll let you pick the starting line with the last two games of the season. But if I win, you can't go anywhere near the owner's box, at least not while Rebecca's still in charge. What the heck you doing? I believe some phone call white like, now. You know, I don't know which one
5: I've here. It's okay. What do you think? You're
4: wrong. Okay. Double uh, in, double out. Whatever you say, Ruth Deuce. Yeah. Just <laughs> let me know if I'm winning or losing, alright? <laughs> oh, I forgot I had these on. Oh. Oh. oh, wait a second. Forgot I'm left handed. <gasps> oh. That was going to be a boot.
0: It. Shut your stupid
5: little Mother! I will Shut it for you. Shall I be giving you the line-up card now, Ted? I shall be putting him back on defence where he belongs. That's exactly
6: what I said,
5: didn't I? No, it's not all Ted's fault. My ex-wife's the one who brought the hillbilly to our shores. I know she's always been a bit randy, but I never thought she would fuck over an entire team. Hey! Better manners when I'm home
4: dark. Fleet.
2: Hmm. Hey. Really
4: winning. Two trip twitties in a bowl of Good luck. Mm. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years I never understood why. I used to really bother me. But then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman painted on the wall there it said be curious not judgmental and I like it so I get back in my car I'm driving to work and all of a sudden it hits me all them fellas used to belittle me and I a single one of them were curious you know they thought they had everything all figured out so they judged everything and they judged everyone and I realized that they're underestimating me who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions.
3: You
4: know, questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon, I had a sports ball with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away.
0: consolation prize
5: Rebecca Ted, enjoy your evening bye as always
3: holy shit that felt good
4: only one thing left to do now what's
0: that
1: The show. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was. Um,
3: did
1: you notice when he talked about curiosity in that scene? <laughs> but it, it is an interesting, uh, an interesting idea. Um, you know, that curiosity may be actually a a guard against us judging people prematurely, right? If we were actually curious, um, I think to be curious about someone, it, it slows down judgment. Um, and uh, maybe to be curious is a way in which we can begin to actually obey Jesus' words to, to judge not lest we be judged, um, to actually know somebody first. <clears throat> so... Uh, to ask questions like, what is your family background like? Do you play much darts? Um, (laughs) What kind of experiences have shaped who you are now? What are you passionate about? What do you, you know, are there any talents that you have? What do you think is funny? What makes you feel uh, most at home in the world? What are your hopes and fears? What makes, you know, there's just so, there's so many uh, things to find out about people that we only find out if we're curious. And what I'm trying to say is that this is really a, a, um, a necessary thing if we're to love anybody in any meaningful way at all. Um, I think uh, if we can postpone our judgment by being curious, it gives us the information and the time to begin empathizing with somebody, actually connecting with them, placing ourselves in their position as as much as we can. Uh, To show no interest in who we're talking to is is really, like I said before, a a form of indifference. Um, They're not of concern to me. And that's really a failure of love. So uh, here again we see the difference that genuine curiosity makes. To be curious about the life of a stranger means that we will be genuine in our question asking. Uh, We will actually enjoy getting to know somebody for the sake of knowing them. If we're curious about people and really want to know them, we will treat knowledge about them as worthwhile for its own sake. Uh, It won't be from a sense of obligation. It actually can be the beginning of of an actual friendship. So in conversations, most people can tell if we're not really that interested in talking to them. It's not very hard. (laughs) So think of the implications for how we interact with people who do not share our faith. If if, if you're a Christian... um, And, you know, you think about how how would I share my faith with somebody who is not a Christian. Uh, Think about without genuine genuine curiosity, Christians are always in danger and very often guilty of treating people like something less than they actually are, right? (laughs) Uh, Some sort of project or problem to be solved. Um, Maybe even in a little box in my conscience to tick off. Um, Something less than an image bearer of God. The conversation is not a means of knowing them; it's a means to some other end. Maybe you are god 's project for me today. You know uh, Who they really are is incidental, and I think this is something that we um, have seen. Maybe we 've been treated like this, maybe we've treated someone like this, but but um, there are so many ways to treat somebody as less than an actual image bearer of God uh, who is worth knowing for the sake of knowing them. So, uh, <clears throat> to be curious is just uh, a huge um, resource somehow in how, we, in how we relate to people. Um, there's a, an interesting uh, little line I heard Tim Keller say once that I really love. Um, really, he's talking about humility. It might have come from somebody else. I'm not sure. He might have been quoting somebody. But he says, The mark of a humble person is not that they're self-deprecating. Sometimes we think that it is. If I'm humble, I've, I'll just talk trash about myself all the time. That, that's humble, right? It's like, no, it's not, it's not uh, self-deprecating. The mark of a humble person is their interest in you. <laughs> that's what a humble person does, is try to find out about you. Uh, in other words, humility isn't just a, um, a bad impression of myself. It's not thinking about myself as much. And turning outward to to other people. <clears throat> the third area of obedience is knowledge of God. And uh, you know, I've, I've struggled sometimes wondering whether curiosity is too light a word to describe the hunger for knowing God. Uh, it's even more relational type of knowledge than the knowledge we have of other people. It's the knowledge of someone who already knows all there is to know about us there's not at all a symmetrical relationship <laughs> that we have with the one who made us uh he sustains us uh, our existence in, in every moment is sustained by him even as we contemplate him our existence is sustained by him uh and so there's no other relationship like this <laughs> uh, There's no right knowledge of God that is detached knowledge of God. And this is something that um, I think has dawned on me slowly over the years. It's impossible to think rightly about God while thinking theoretically about God. (laughs) Uh, Theology is never simply information gathering. Because whatever theological truths we learn have a direct impact on our lives. They immediately apply. Um... There's no such thing as correct knowledge about God if we do not know Him in a relational way as well. Our, our theology, this is all different ways of saying the same thing, our theology will always be deficient until we pray. Um, in a sense, one could argue, I don't know, one, one could argue that... Uh, Theology is the purpose of theology is to try to ensure that we know who we're talking to when we pray. (laughs) Who is this that I'm relating to? Who is he? Who is he not? So, if we're going to use the word curiosity, uh, to we we have to we have to sort of uh, include uh, concepts of wonder and awe and worship and love. And the deepest longings that we have. So it's a very weighty kind of curiosity, the desire to know God. The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about idle curiosity being good. It has a lot to say about hungering and thirsting for God. And uh, I'll just we'll just go through a couple of texts um, quickly as examples for something that is uh, all throughout Scripture. So Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for You. My soul thirsts for God for the living God when can I go and meet with God my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long where is your God so this is comparing uh, our desire for God to the desire that a dehydrated animal has in the desert that's dying it's it's a longing for God in a way that you're longing for something without which you you die um so, uh, this is not longing for more knowledge about God. This is longing for God Himself. <clears throat> Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. And this is a, a beautiful picture of ongoing inquiry into, into the nature of God. Who is He? Uh, ongoing revelation about God even as we're in his presence. Um, I'm just you know there's obviously more more to say. Um, Jesus words in Matthew 7 ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and the door will be open to you. for everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. So this is this amazing picture of the availability of God to us is so real and close. Uh, all we have to do is want him and seek him. And so uh, these these texts are, are all about appeals to God's people to seek him and to come back. Um, the Bible is also full of exhortations to look around you. It's not just longing for God. It's exhortations to look around you for evidence of God's glory. Both glory in creation, you think of Psalm 19, I won't put it on the screen, but um, the heavens are declaring the glory of God all the time to those of us who have ears to hear it, and eyes to see it. Um, All creation tells of the glory of God, it points to him. Um, Psalm 104 is one of my favorite psalms, it does this in a very um, beautiful beautiful and focused way. Um, But also... Look for God's glory in other people. We are His image bearers. One of the reasons why there's no physical image of God in the Hebrew temple was because the image of God had already been placed in creation. (laughs) Um, People are the closest thing to, to God, because we bear His image, even though we are in many ways, not particularly like God. Still, we're told to look at other people and, and, uh, and, re- and learn something about who God is. <clears throat> so we start to see that curiosity about creation and curiosity about people can lead us to a deeper knowledge of God himself. Um, it's at creation and at other people that he tells us to look to learn about him. So if we act on our curiosity about the natural world, we will grow in our knowledge of God's reality, His power, His his creativity, His goodness. He's not left left us in a universe that's empty of evidence for His character. Um, The last biblical text I want to look at tonight is um, Psalm 8, Um, and I'll just read it. A portion of it. What I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And I think of I think of Psalm eight as being um as containing three layers of wonder. David is you picture David looking up at the night sky. Um the first layer of wonder he experiences is just the night sky. It's it's the vastness of something. Who knows what he understood about what he was looking at. But he knew it was big, (laughs) and there was a lot of it. And so he's in awe just of the experience of looking at what is there. But then he wonders at the power and majesty of God, who could have made all of it, who must, to some degree, transcend it, or to every degree, transcend it, So that's the second layer of wonder. Who is this God that could have made, made this? Something that's bigger than even I can imagine. He's bigger still. And then there's the, then there's sort of the punchline, which is the third, third layer of wonder. He wonders at the fact that despite the vastness of the world and despite the fact that God transcends it all, he still considers David significant. What in the world is going on? Why? So uh and I think we can join David in this. This is a good discipline. Um, along with David, we can observe the natural world, learn something both about God's power and transcendence, but also his imminence, his closeness. Um, it is an amazing thing that the God who made the stars pays any attention at all to 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 me and to you. And actually is right next to us in this room and actually is sharing our our burdens. So looking at creation to find more about God. We've talked about this. Uh, Anna and I have done a series on creation care, this, a very loose series on creation care over the last couple of years. And um, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of being able to look around at the world as God has made it and, and to learn something about his character and who he is. Um, something that I've often included in this Lecture on Curiosity is a is funny anecdote, and I'll, I'll include it again. Um, this guy is named J.B.S. Haldane. He was a British um, evolutionary biologist, 20th century. I'm not sure exactly when he lived, but he was um, an atheist and famous for being an atheist. And so uh, somebody asked him once, uh, if God existed, what, if anything, could we learn about him by, by looking at the natural world, Right. Um, and this is a tongue-in-cheek question because they knew that he didn't believe in God, right? Uh, But his answer is really great. So he he said, um, if one could conclude anything as to the nature of the Creator from a study of creation, it would appear that God has an inordinate fondness for stars and beetles. Oh, there's the quote, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, okay, so this is... um, Pretty amazing uh, beetles constitute twenty two percent of all of described species on the planet
2: earth
1: plants and algae <laughs> and what
2: percent?
1: 18. eighteen I'm sorry it's so tiny. <laughs> Vertebrates are 1%. That's all. Anything with a backbone is 1%. What's the other?
3: What? Others.
1: Other insects are 13%. No, just other. Just other. Oh, other. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Other invertebrates. Oh, yeah, other invertebrates. That's a whole 12%. Okay, we're in there somewhere. I, don't, I have no idea I have no idea.
7: <laughs> idea.
1: You need to do your own research for this. <laughs>
7: we've a lot of species out that we haven't even identified
1: Yeah <laughs> un, yeah described species that just means things that we've discovered and named. <laughs> <Yes>. Labradoodles. <laughs> anyway so uh it, it, the the general point is that there's a tremendous number of beetle species on the planet earth just just over the top exorbitant uh why <laughs> or that's not the right word but um Excessive. <laughs> uh, almost every, you now, now the pictures of the beetles here. These are these are arranged not scientifically; they're arranged very aesthetically. Uh, so these beetles belong to different subfamilies, and they're, they're they're you know, if you saw it arranged scientifically, you'd have about a thousand that look almost identical, right? Um, but this is just gives you a, a sense of the diversity of beetle species in the world. Um, that, according to Haldane, if there's a god, there isn't, but if there's a god, he must like beetles because, um, this is what we have. Um, that is, uh, 350,000 species of beetles. Um, so far. So far. <laughs> Growth mindset. <laughs> uh, so, uh, just to review this section, um, without curiosity about creation, my point that I'm trying to make, without curiosity about creation, we will not care for it very well or with joy. And without curiosity about people, we will only love them half-heartedly and maybe pragmatically, which, which isn't really love. And without curiosity about God, we will not seek Him as urgently and fervently as we need to, to know Him as we should. Uh, so this is what I mean by preliminary virtue. <clears throat> and then, so what, what a lot of the biblical texts were about is, is, you know, without curiosity about creation and other people, we'll miss out on two of the main ways that God has told us to get to know Him. So obviously, Scripture is, is an important way, but, but uh, theologians often talk about two two books that we hold, one in each hand, of, of to, to know God. There's the book of, of Scripture, which is uh, special revelation, and there's the book of creation, general revelation, that anybody can go and look at to learn something about who he is. Um, and I want to conclude just with a, a, a very brief reflection on uh, what if we feel we're just not very curious. This is the only practical thing in the lecture. <laughs> this is... Um, uh, I've argued that curiosity is an innate thing that God has given us and that we're born with, but along the way, we, we, we tend to lose it. There's lots of enemies uh, to curiosity. Um, and I've talked about the, gen- the importance of genuine curiosity in a relationship th- with the world. Uh, what if I just don't feel curious about many things? Um, is curiosity sort of like a talent that someone either has or doesn't? Or like... Um, taste that someone has, like they either like broccoli or you don't. Um, is that what curiosity is like? So that if if you, if you listen to Ted Lasso and say, be curious, is that a meaningful statement or is that like saying like broccoli Mm -hmm. and you just don't? So can we actually become more curious or is it just a, a quality that we have or don't have? Um, and I think, um, I want to encourage you that, uh, curiosity is a quality that that we can grow in, that we can recover. Um, we have every reason to expect to grow in curiosity if we try to foster it, because to do so, we're actually restoring a, a creational aspect of our humanity, which is what God is in the business of doing. Um, and, and so as we, you know, when we're when we're when we're working on being curious we're, we're dealing with something that's ne- that's not wholly foreign to us at all it's not it's not um, a completely novel thing and I think the Holy Spirit can help us if our curiosity can can atrophy from lack of use it can also uh, we can exercise it <laughs> and this is where actually I find that the that um, illegible feedback loop that I showed you a few minutes ago of Dr. Bruce Perry's kind of idea uh, of childhood development. I, I think that, that, I think we can enter that, that feedback loop in the exploration section. <laughs> Actually make yourself go and look and start to try to find out things and that's, and you can enter into that, that loop in any place. He's describing young children who just have curiosity innately a part of their Part of who they are, and so that they can um, then explore, then grow, and everything like that. But you can begin to explore and grow in curiosity. I think, and I've seen this happen um, in my own life. The more you investigate, the more you realize there is to investigate, and the more and the the, the more of a taste you have for it, and the more of an excitement you have for it. So, um, there's a lot of of very good and joyful fruit to being curious, and. I do think that it's something that Christian people need to think about more, more often. Um, both, both because, of, um, because it's, it enables us to respond to God's call. Um, second, in a secondary way, it enables us to defy some stereotypes of what Christians are like. Uh, what would it be like to surprise the world with our curiosity? Uh, and, and for curiosity to be, to, to be displayed as part of my belief in who God is. That would be good. I think that would be surprising for lots of people. I'm going to end there. And uh, at this point, we can uh, share comments or questions. And we'll take some from the room. And then maybe if, if those of you who are far away want to type in your questions... Um, then I think Anna can can read them out. Yeah. Any thoughts? I've gone on a bit longer than I wanted to. I apologize, but uh, any any thoughts or questions? Nate.
8: Yeah, this uh, made me think a couple lectures we've had in the past, um, like Dave when you gave a lecture last term on flow. It mm. seems like it's be nearly impossible to have flow without curiosity hmm. and uh, those two go together. Even Joshua's lecture last term or last uh, week on hmm time. So mm-hmm. There's a direct correlation, but people who have like a healthy relationship with curiosity also have a very healthy relationship <coughs> with
1: time. Hmm. So. Could you could you um, flesh that out more what you mean? Uh, Nate who's in the room with me here just um, was uh, pointing out a connection between having a healthy relationship with time and being curious. Can you, do, you, do you want to flesh that out more? Or?
8: Yeah, I think you know, for somebody who's very time-oriented or a group of people who are very time-oriented, they don't, there's not much space or margin or energy to be curious Yeah. because they're consumed by time.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Nate was saying that um, for people who are very very time conscious and maybe very driven and maybe sort of like task oriented or something like that is that what you mean or yeah, yeah. It, there, there doesn't seem to be time for curiosity um, I think that's very true I think I think, um, I think for, for busy people with lots to do uh, curi- being curious about the birds outside seems like a self-indulgent thing like come on <laughs> we don't have time for this Um, and it's true that, you know, if you, if if you have young kids, sometimes you do have to say, we don't have time for this because there actually is something that has to happen. But, but, uh, if there's no margins in your life to, um, explore without any set goal to achieve, (laughs) then, uh, then I think part of that part of us will sort of starve. I think, um... And uh, or or I guess a better word is curiosity atrophies from lack of use. (laughs) Um, Because a lot of the a lot of the um, there's so many things to to explore and learn about, which would be life-giving and beautiful for us, but they don't serve an immediate purpose. Uh, Don't serve some sort of pragmatic purpose. And if and if I'm a very very task-oriented person, it may be. I may have to be forced to be curious, <laughs> to stop and look at something, and 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 not um, be able to write down my achievements afterwards. But just, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, Marty. I'm
6: just thinking. I just what I mean, as you said that? That your your whole lecture is really a, a kind of argument for adults to have relationships with children, <laughs> and because you you know everything you said, children are born curious. And you you notice that, and you are a third force. Stop because mm-hmm. you spend time with children and, and notice things and, mm-hmm. and enjoy what they are discovering. And right. It's, it's uh. I mean, I, it, it, just memories came flooding back as you were you were talking of my my um my oldest grandson just when he was really little. I mean, the, the first things he said was, "What's that? What's that? What's mm-hmm. that? What's that? Just, mm-hmm. What?" And then after soon after that, was, "Why? Why? Mm-hmm. Why?" And again, I anyway. Mean, as children and that's, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And then just, when the children get a little older, um, my uncle, a good example of curiosity nearly killing the cat, he'd, he'd, heard of, he'd, he'd read in the newspaper about an airplane that crashed, you may have heard of this story, an yep. airplane that crashed and the gasoline burned on top of the water mm-hmm. and he couldn't believe that would happen. So, he filled the bathtub with water, in the basement, poured gasoline on top, and he lit it. And to his surprise, he burned down the bathroom. Oh no! Yeah. Hmm. I mean he sort of, he was a doctor, and he was always, you know, he was always experimenting, but that was one of the more dangerous
1: yeah, experiments. Curiosity doesn't kill you; it makes you stronger.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this, the, the the comment here was about um, about uh, how much of this lecture had to do with children and the relationship of children and um, children's curiosity, and uh, I think that's true. Uh, that is maybe another pathway for grown-ups to grow in curiosity is to just spend time with kids, and then it's like it rubs off on you. It's like you're, you're um, let's say... Uh, because, because what you're doing is you're is you're if you're actually engaging with the child and not just like spacing out yourself, um, you can start to see something that's very commonplace to you, but through their eyes, which is it's new. Like everything is new. Think think of all the things that are new to a small child. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I remember. Uh, maybe I've maybe I've inflated this story into being more profound than it actually was. I don't know. But I was with my daughter Abigail, which was very little um just just barely verbal, you know. But she had, you know, kids' books and seen pictures of bees before and they go bzzzz and you know, she you know. And uh we were out on the patio here, and a huge big bumblebee was just like just like hovering in the air right in front of her, and she was just like, ah! you know, because it, it wasn't just like look at this interesting thing. It was a connection between what she had seen in her book and then the real thing. Uh and it was just like she knew it was a bee, and she was <laughs> astounded. You know, <laughs> um, and that was really, you know, wonderful to experience something completely commonplace. And 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 when we are familiar with something, we become underwhelmed by it when we um, it doesn't impress us anymore. And to to see uh, to see her experience something commonplace for the first time was like, well, yeah, it really actually is quite a helpful thing for grown-ups to, to see that, because like, oh, actually it is is—it is pretty amazing <laughs> that this can exist. Um, when
6: Jesus said, except you become like children, yeah. you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, it be great. And
1: curiosity is yeah. yeah, yeah.
6: Yeah, that makes
9: me think of different stories that we tell that kind of like I think of Peter Pan Mm -hmm. and his decision to never grow up essentially because grown-ups lose their curiosity Mm -hmm. and he brings Wendy with him to the land where you're always curious and inevitably she has to go back and grow up Mm -hmm. it's it's similar with Mary Poppins. her whole goal is to bring families back together and sort of the climax of the movie Mm -hmm. is the like angry banker father saying let's go fly a kite Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with his children and and choosing to yeah but I feel like these stories are like a especially as I grow up are like more and more of this like painful nostalgia Mm -hmm. to watch Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if maybe that's because like I've been presented with the idea that like Losing that sense of curiosity, at least to an extent, is inevitable. Hmm. Um, yeah, because I feel like that's a lot of what we're told is necessary to be a functioning grown-up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of an undeveloped thought, but I think it's hopeful yep. to to think that maybe that's not the only mm-hmm. route.
1: Yeah. To not assume that adulthood intrinsically has to do with shedding something that's, that was good. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, lots, lots, lots of just normal and inevitable things come along with adulthood that, that It's all—it's a mixed bag, you know. There's there's lots of things that we're free to do as kids that we just—if we're going to be responsible—we're not free to do as adults. (laughs) And yet, you know, the the idea that we would um, lose our our joy and our wonder and our curiosity and somehow that's intrinsic to being grown up is really tragic, you know. Yeah, Uh, it's intrinsic to being a a bored, sad grown up. (laughs) But um, so yeah, yeah. But that's interesting. These so um, um, Eleanor just shared that she, when wa- when reading stories like Peter Pan or watching films uh, like uh, Mary Poppins, there's sort of a painful nostalgia there. Um, that somehow this return to like childlike joy is just uh, not possible or, or difficult or mm-hmm. not allowed or whatever. I'm not sure if that's a fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Quint. Um.
5: Speaking about the education of an artist, as far as the first point you covered, I'd like to recommend a book I read when I was a freshman in college Mm -hmm. by the artist Ben Sean. It's called The Shape of Content, and he stresses the uh, curiosity of the artist Mm -hmm. as their means to uh, become an educated artist. Hmm. It might include college classes, it might not. Yeah but the curiosity that they have in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was a lecture at Harvard that, that was the basis of this book.
1: Okay. Uh, so uh, Clint just recommended a book. What's the title of it again?
5: The Shape of Content.
1: The Shape of Content by... by Ben Sean. He was ben Sean, okay. Base. So um, a book recommendation. um where uh, curiosity is, is pointed out as being a really important aspect of, of, of the life of the artist. Yes. The relationship, the education of the artist, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Awesome. Did you, did you have, Jessica? Yeah,
2: you mentioned um, at the beginning and end of the lecture that Christians do not have a reputation for being curious. Mm-hmm. And given all the things you outlined about why we should be, why is it the case that Christians aren't, hmm. or perceived as not being
1: I'm curious. What do you all think about that? <laughs> <laughs> Why the question is, you know, and, and, and I, I have to um uh that is a generalization and I know that there's lots of examples of 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 Christian people who are who are beautifully curious, but uh just it's sort of my my imagining from the outside looking in towards the church, is the church known for curious people? I guess is the so the question is why why not? What given given all the awesome reasons for being curious, why why aren't why do we have this reputation for not being curious? Yeah, yeah, I
8: think I agree with that. I think one way Christians are leading the way and being curious is with education. Like think about the classical education, model, mm-hmm. and the Charlotte Mason and the homeschool movement. Are mm-hmm. all Started, initiated by a lot of Christians, mm-hmm. I think those education models like promote a lot more curiosity than the traditional model, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. like schools where it's largely out of textbooks and, and things like that, which can mm. yeah, a lot of that. Mm.
1: Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. Um,
2: do you think that it has to do with um, the the way people? carry a sense of um, having uh, understood or believed truth mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. as like then an end mm-hmm. a stopping point mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so like it's experienced as sort of this uh, final word mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> that yeah creates a disposition maybe mm-hmm. toward conversation or towards uh, anything that disagrees with that,
1: right? Um, as something
2: yeah, swear off against rather than that's something to explore.
1: And to okay. Yeah. Consider. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm, I'm asking.
1: I no, I, I think so, so. Yeah. So this is. Um, uh, I'm gonna be bad at repeating <laughs> this comment. Um, but maybe, maybe sort of a, an understanding of the truth that you know, because we're Christians, we have this, we have the truth. And and it kind of stops there, and that things that we're exposed to that are new or uncomfortable are are um, maybe our understanding of the truth causes us to have have sort of a uh, combative relationship to the re- rather than open to exploring. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that fair to? I'm not sure that's what you were saying, but yeah, so. yeah, yeah.
3: I think it's also sort of a
2: misunderstanding of the nature of truth as a per- person.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah. person, Let alone God mm. is sort of an invitation to endless exploration. Yeah. And hopefully, a increasing sense of not having mastered
1: right. <laughs> this yeah.
2: This person or uh, God himself. Yeah. So it, anyway, like I think that would be that's ho- hopefully the mm-hmm. kind of um, relationship to the person of Christ. Yeah. Loose, yeah. Uh, that can, yeah, be more of
1: what shapes us than yeah. our curiosity. So Sarah is just saying that the um, an understanding of the truth as being a person, not just uh, a belief or a system or something like that, but a person would would maybe free us to to understand truth as something that we will continually always uh, get to know better. Um, and I think that's, I think that's true. I think, I think maybe this is a different way of saying a similar thing, but I, um, I feel that, that many Christians I've spoken to, because we have this, you know, pearl of great price, we have this, um, this truth, which is salvation. It's so important and so profound and so necessary that uh, maybe we get the attitude that what else would we need? <laughs> you know, it, it's almost like why you know why would you need to read it, read something other than the Bible? That's what, that's it's all right there, kind of thing. Um, which, uh, yeah, which which you know, sadly, well, ironically, like hinders us from actually knowing God as deeply as we're supposed to. But by by. Um, by examining more of more of what he's made. Um, I think I wonder whether also at um, in answer to or another aspect of your of your question, Jessa, about what what's the I think um, so many of of problems in the Christian church stem back to some kind of influence of Platonic thinking, <laughs> uh Greek influence thinking about the uh, the physical world, not really being of spiritual significance, um, if anything, it's sort of a hindrance to spirituality. Um, and, uh, that I think has been a huge, has a huge dampening effect in the, in the, in American church, um, towards any kind of interest in the natural world. Why would we bother? Um, why would I bother there's there and and along with a very sacred and secular division where like these these are the important spiritual things that I'm supposed to do over here and that's what honors god and then there's everything else in the universe that's you take it or leave it um and that is um just has 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 done a lot of damage to the world and to the church and to people in it um because it's 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 uh in a sense, confining Christ to an area. It's not making him Lord or allowing him to be Lord of all of creation and everything in it. It's, it's confining him to the, to the, uh, to the box with the other churchy things. And, and then, uh, and, so, so, and t- to such a degree that like a Christian person who loves to study beetles is just seen as kind of a weirdo. Like, why would they do that? Oh, maybe they're wasting their time. Maybe they're not really using the time that God has given them. Properly, because it's a you know, their interest in Beatles is just a preoccupation from what really matters, which is you know, saving souls, or um, it's, I'm just rambling, but the, but the, the sort of Platonic influence on Christian thinking has been very destructive, and I, and I can't help but feel like that that's an aspect of it. You know, why why is it that there's so um, that the Christians are so late to uh, to the party when it comes to caring about creation <laughs> and trying to, um, partially because of this, this sort of bad theology of the physical world. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Dick, yeah, first yeah, to
7: say that it's wonderful that some Christians are the greatest exemplars. Yes. Of, of yeah. getting to grips with that. And I mean, I like, how did you? Be saying this about Dostoevsky or something. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that, that to me raises it because I think I think a lot of Christians, particularly with a, with a particular style of uh, piety, mm-hmm. uh, have the nasty non-Christian world don't know who God is, they don't know who, they don't know why, they are not to all these questions. We do. Phew. We've got the answer. <laughs> we know who God is, we yeah. know what the answer is, we know where we're going, we can relax, we're... And so, and what that, in fact, they don't really have a grip, because the
3: world, <laughs> mm-hmm. the
7: Bible says, is a huge tension between mm-hmm. the creation, mm-hmm. the goodness of God, and the fallenness of the yeah. world, yeah. So the bendness and the twistedness and the screwed upness of the world, mm-hmm. the suffering in the world, and and uh, Christians, at their best, have a grip on this very tension. You look mm-hmm. at, at at Lewis or Tolkien or mm-hmm. Tolkien. Uh, Elliot mm-hmm. uh, are, are dealing with with uh, the tremendous tension and the dynamic of that tension. You see, some Christian piety, enable, it's just almost would make you snooze.
1: Yeah, you
7: know, and say, it's like uh,
1: lobotomize. Uh,
7: <laughs> and and uh, because the, the Christian the worldview itself is a, is filled with tension. Yeah, this is a fallen world and this we're going to be in this fallen world till Jesus comes back.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: And, and uh, the, the tensions that you see in good Christian, say, literature,
3: mm-hmm.
7: or argue, I mean, I don't know whether people disagree whether Shakespeare was a Christian, but mm-hmm. certainly he, the world that he pers- that he worked in was yeah. a Christian, a theistic framework yeah. and, and, and fallen, a broken framework, but fantastic mm-hmm. sensitivity to mm-hmm. this tension between good and evil
1: yeah.
7: in this world, which is just... Um, if we think we've got it sewed up, yeah, and we get, phew, we, we haven't had to do this. We we really lose curiosity, yeah, uh, engagement of the
1: yeah. world around us. And and it's, I mean, it it connects back with what Sarah was saying about. I mean, it's this idea that if we have the truth, phew, reality for us doesn't have to be dynamic anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, we've got the answer. We can, we can you know rather than oh, we have the truth, and now we have to really. <laughs> knowing what we know really engage in a way we haven't before yeah yeah there's a couple of different hands over here With Jessica, do you want to come yeah, back on that Yeah,
3: just so to
2: yeah. I, I also wonder if part of that lack of curiosity is driven by fear because there's mm-hmm. this sort of perception of you know, Christianity being under attack yeah and so therefore a lot of energy goes to preserving the things that we already know the beliefs we already have mm-hmm. and further attack which means that you know wasting time or pursuing inquiry in, in fields that might raise
9: further objections, whether that's evolutionary biology or anthropology or whatever it is, yeah. are somehow threats. And so, therefore, yeah. the energy has to go with it protecting and preserving
1: rather than further right. That's Yeah, that's a good point. Like uh, Jess was just saying that um, perhaps one of the issues happening is thats that is – that, uh, there's there's a lot of fear in people's uh, in people's faith that if if we investigate, if we're curious, if we actually um, allow questions to be asked, then then our faith is sort of tenuous and and it's suddenly being questioned. There's all these kinds of threats to it, and so to not be curious is sort of an a, um, an impulse to protect our faith. Is that is that sort of what you're getting at? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Anna in the back. Yes.
2: Not
1: an internet question,
2: it's just my question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I I don't think that you said this. In fact I really appreciate how you organized this. Um, but how how can we keep preliminary virtue is that the phrase you use? Yeah. Yeah. From becoming or or is it okay? I feel a little nervous whenever I feel like something's very utilitarian. Like, okay, we're gonna use um, curiosity to love God or we need to use curiosity to love people or we need to use curiosity to take care of creation I don't think that's what you said mm. um, but I'm just wondering about how curiosity might relate to like what it means to be a preacher mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, therefore it's good in and of itself Yeah. even if it didn't even though it's wonderful to see it's a name that it was helpful Mm-hmm. It will help us love our neighbor. It will help us love God. I'm I just wondering if we, what do you think about like backing up and wondering about the goodness of curiosity, yeah. like intrinsically, yeah. or is it just like to be curious is to be what you're supposed to be?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. That? Yeah, I like that. I like that question that I think Anna was asking. Um, c- could we could we be making a mistake if we think of curiosity to too utilitarian a way in other words it 's a capacity that God gave us so that we could do other things um, couldn 't we say that curiosity is just intrinsically good in itself a, 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 um, just a, um, an essential aspect of what it is to be a creature period um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I want, I, I sort of want to question that, that it has to be, that those two have to be in conflict with each other. It's like, well yeah, it's absolutely how God made us to be, and it's good in itself, and yet because it's good in itself, it's super useful, <laughs> you know, like, that the, but to acknowledge the way in which it serves other aspects of, of life isn't to therefore say that it's only sort of a tool in the toolbox, you know. Um. Although one could one could go that way, you know, it's like you sh- we should be, get more curious because if you are, you could do this, and this is what's valuable over here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's just a part of. Um, I think you see this in the um, in the joy that truly cre- curious people experience when the, when they're being when they're indulging their curiosity in some area. It's not, and and there's there there might not be a particular. Uh, measurable goal, but it's just fun and it's, and it's and it's uh it's a joy and you get the sense that oh this is there's something actually this this person is um yeah exper- experiencing some fullness of what it is to be a creature yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and it yeah it's yeah anyway go ahead <laughs>
2: No matter what, I don't know who was at fault there. Probably lots of things. But she started the whole year by saying, by quoting, I think it's a proverb: um, "It's the glory, it's the glory of God to conceal things; it's the glory of kings to find things out." Like hmm. there. And she, she had a, that was the foundation for the whole class. Like, it hmm. is our glory, yeah, to find things out. To hmm. this class. I don't remember many sentences from my life. I really remember that, and then yeah, I just wondered yeah, yeah. if there's some kind of experience of glory and curiosity. Mm-hmm. This is something of what we're made to do, and yeah. it's
1: joyful. What you were saying—that's an awesome way to begin a yeah. chemistry semester, because it's—I mean, it's, it's a reminder that actually, you know, mm-hmm. Christianity is sort of at, at, at the foundation of science. <laughs> you know, in, in terms of, and, and really, like sort of what we were talking about earlier about in Genesis, this idea of go out and discover the prior orderliness of things. Basically, how, how is it that God has already made, um, made the world? And uh, right, the world
5: view has the most knowledge to acquire. Yeah. Secular humanism is limited because yeah. it stops with the end of a person's life. Mm-hmm. Eastern mysticism, it, it, it's meant to be. Finalized because they want to be in Nirvana, which is nothing. Mm. So we have, like Adam was saying, we have an endless amount of knowledge to to explore. Mm.
1: hmm And an ex- yeah, an, ex- an expectation that when we turn to to the creation, we will find things that are coherent and make sense. I mean, not everything is adds up perfectly, but like that we will find order. Um, but also, I think what you were getting at, Clint, is that is that uh, this is an aspect of of ultimately our relationship to God Himself, which continues forever, and which you know, like you were saying, Sarah, we're not, we shouldn't expect to come to the end of it. If truth is a person. We're in a relationship with God forever, and and uh, which means that we will be learning forever. Um, which is not which is not a, a static. Greek concept of perfection at all. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, to me, much more exciting picture of what it is to be with God for all eternity. Um, just to be in a relationship, which will be dynamic, and we're growing, we're learning. We're, we're um, yeah, Marty.
6: This is, this is getting back to your question, but I, I think um, why why many Christians don't. Have uh, reputation of being curious. Uh, for, for a lot of people, I, I mean, this is related to what many people have said, but their experience of evangelism it has mm-hmm. been just, you know, um, I've got the truth and I'm giving it to you. Mm-hmm. We've got the answers. And, and um, you know, handing someone a tract that, mm-hmm. that sort of condenses these massive questions into, this is the truth, right? But mm-hmm. it doesn't communicate a sense of curiosity, or that I have more to learn, and that, mm-hmm. that I'm hungry to grow and know more. And that, unfortunately, is what a lot of people in our culture have experienced in mm-hmm. Christianity, of public evangelism, of, of even one-on-one events, of being evangelized mm-hmm. by a friend. Um, but but I think, I mean, I'm just thinking of, or, or one other thing along those lines, it's actually it's actually something that has bugged me about um, the way Mrs. Schaefer sometimes described Labrie uh, the mm-hmm. experience of Labrie and I knew Shapers and I know this isn't really what was going on but you know all these students come they sit around the table and Fran gave answers mm-hmm. and this is Fran giving answers giving answers and in fact I knew him, and he listened intently and he asked he was very curious about people and he mm-hmm. really wanted to understand their questions and and he also knew when he didn't know an answer mm-hmm. but just the little phrase I think turned I think in some ways, understandably, can turn people off and give people yeah. false, mm. false impression. But it's but that's partly into the relativism, the relativistic idea. That, yeah. And, I mean, I went to secular schools, and I can remember taking Bible classes with people who didn't believe the Bible, mm-hmm. and their whole thing was it's all about the search, not about finding. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus was all enigmatic, and it, it, the important thing is the search. Mm. You don't find. So that's the other side where. We're going to be um, even persons who are very curious, but if they're claiming that we actually have found mm-hmm. something that's true with a capital T, that's going to be offensive.
1: Yeah. To yeah.
6: To religious relativism. Yep.
1: Yeah. I'm n I'm not. I don't know how to paraphrase that. Yeah, so sorry. just <laughs> go yeah, yeah, is it Dave? Do you have one, or uh, Nate, or I'm either?
8: Sorry if you speak on it it seems mostly you've been talking about um, pure curiosity what about curiosity that leads you that's deviant Hmm. and I just wonder and I wonder even if that may be part of a good reason maybe why Christians aren't known for curiosity in that sense like oh you know what's sex like outside of marriage Mm, Yeah. yeah. why wouldn't you be curious about that yeah yeah, and we I can go into other areas, but I wonder mm-hmm. yeah, how do we Yeah, what do you think of, you think of yeah. curiosity
1: and how does that contrast? Yeah. I don't know. I mean I I um I I s I still think there's there's a way in which it it's still something good corrupted. You know, I mean, there's, there's, um, I do think that part of the, part of the problem today is that I think we're, um, maybe it's sort of an assumption in pop culture that you don't know anything until you've really, until you've experienced it yourself, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you know that, you know, the drugs are a mistake? You need to experience everything, you know, (laughs) unless you've experienced everything, you don't really know anything. Um, rather than I know enough to know that this is a bad choice (laughs) and that's not a lack of curiosity. That's just being, being wise to the fact that the, that there are things in the world which, which are bad for us. Um, yeah, um. Anybody, I mean, I, I'm just sort of, I'm still ruminating over it, obviously. Does anybody else have, have thoughts?
5: Because word is still a standard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't mean, I mean, I think it's a mistake to think of, of um... <laughs> anyone see the movies Utopia? Um, to, to, to think of, to, to be curious and to be alive, you need to try everything. That's this big song at the end of the movie. Try everything. You're like, what are you? Even my even my like five year old kid was. Like, that's that's weird, you know, you know. there's things there's there's things that you that, that you shouldn't try, and that, and that's not somehow being narrow minded, you know. Yeah.
7: Any gift, if it's used outside of any sort of moral framework at all. Yeah. Can go absolutely anywhere.
1: Yeah, and, and, and so there's no, it's no bad credit on curiosity. Yeah, that it can go really wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anything outside of a moral framework can be catastrophic to yourself and others. Yeah. So that's just yeah. interesting. Yeah, the, the comment was that um, you know, in, any good thing outside of a moral framework can can create havoc. And uh, yeah, I just think yeah, it's it, it's not. Um, I think. There's something, I don't know. Maybe this is a, maybe this is a not a meaningful distinction, but I'll throw it out there anyway and see if you all see if you all <laughs> what you have to say. Is there a distinction between curiosity towards something that's outside of myself? I want to know something about something that is truly other than myself, and then a, a curiosity which is what would it be like to experience this? What would it feel like to, whatever, commit adultery? It doesn't even have to be something something really bad morally, but like, what would it be like to, to feel this? What would it be like to do that? Um, there, there can be like a a real, a real self-indulgent, inward looking kind of, I want to seek experiences. I want to seek more exciting, um, uh, a more exciting life than I have currently. It, It doesn't really have to do with learning about anything outside of my head um, I don't know whether Watching that is the a
5: video about Alaska isn't the same as going there.
1: That's that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. John, John, did you?
0: Yeah, I think there's also going back to what Dick was saying earlier, about the reality of a <coughs> a world which is beautiful and created and and good and yet fallen. Mm-hmm. That there are. There are things which are not only. Like, curiosity can't be sort of completely free to just roll down the hill with no constraint whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Because actually, there are parts, there are things in the world that are scary and bad. And maybe to go back to talking about kids, Mm -hmm. like, you want to encourage creativity and, and curiosity in kids, but there's a point where you say, like, do not cross that road. Yeah. Without mummy or daddy. Mm-hmm. Just don't do it. Yeah. Like, why is that? Because I love you. Mm-hmm. I care for you, and one day you'll understand. Yeah. And that's okay. And similarly, there, are, you know, there are maybe there's just a respect for the reality of a world that's bigger than us. Yeah. And the reality of a world that's fallen. I think yeah there are some things like you know well, you mentioned like the occult it's mm-hmm. like it's just don't get into, you know yeah. everyone I know that has got <coughs> that has ministered in that context yeah. and has said be really careful asking too many questions about that yeah you, like you don't want to get serious I yeah. know that you don't want to get into it and they don't, yeah. like it's not even like oh yeah it is really interesting actually it's just right. just, mm-hmm. just, yeah. just don't go there yeah um, and so
1: maybe there's a
0: trust. Yep. To the wisdom of our elders,
1: and say right. Yeah. yeah. That I that I can know something. I can know something. Well enough. To to avoid it, rather than I have to have experienced it to know, right? Um. And it has to do with trusting and respecting people that know more than us. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think it, it reminds me of the. Uh, some edition of the screw tape letters when Lewis talks about, you know, there's two great, mis- the two big mistakes that people make about the devil is thinking he doesn't exist at all, which gives him freedom to do whatever he wants, or being just in a really unwholesome way fascinated, you know. Uh, and those, <laughs> those are, the, those are the two great mistakes, you know. Um, and, uh, and and it's and it's it's sort of telling how little the bible tells us about about the devil and and um it's like enough to know stay away <laughs> yeah but that but but in order to receive and accept that it takes it takes some humility and some some acknowledgement that there are boundaries set for us. Um, and I think that's one of the, the hugely naive thing about people that get into the occult is that it's why would anything in the in the, in the unseen world want to hurt me? <laughs> I'm, there's this sort of invincibility that like you actually yeah, it's, it's scary. Um, yeah, was there? I don't want to research, but just
2: somebody said online I thought this interesting, um, I was interesting. Who's watching it on Facebook? Do you think maybe the distinction is selfish curiosity versus selfless curiosity? Mm-hmm. Kind of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Or maybe
1: it's wonder-filled curiosity versus rebellious curiosity. Mm-hmm. There's so, so many ways to, to articulate it, yeah. I was I'm, I was thinking, what I was trying to articulate, I think, is, is an outward-looking curiosity versus uh, inward self-indulgent kind of, I want to accumulate experiences. Or even just, what would it feel like to do this? <laughs> Which isn't the same thing. Isn't the same thing as what is this place like, or what does this person think, or, or yeah, um, and not 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 that it's not that to wonder, but what would it feel like to do something? You know, not that that's intrinsically bad necessarily at all, but like, but 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 um, it's also not necessarily drawing us outward to to other people and to God, yeah. Um, yeah. This is related to a, a very much today's
6: today thing. To the fact that the Bible very clearly warns against us being trying to know our future. Mm. So mm-hmm. don't go to fortune tellers. Don't go to the necromancers. You know, mm. that this is really dangerous. Yeah. That, that's totally into trusting. Trusting God for yeah. the future rather than trusting the knowledge that I know this, this, and this has been happening to me. Mm-hmm. And you even see it in Jesus talking to, is it Peter? But like Jesus said something to John. Jesus said something to one of the disciples what was mm-hmm. going to happen to them. And the other one says, What
3: about
1: me, Lord?
6: And he mm-hmm. says, you, John mm-hmm. Peter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Follow you me. Follow me. Follow me. Like, I'm yeah. like, you know, you're, <laughs> Wait a second. Like, they,
6: get bad yeah. they don't want to go. Yeah. And then the other guy says, What about me? And he says, Just follow me. So mm-hmm. I that, 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 that's really interesting because I think it's really. Uh, we are. We all, mm. we all tend to worry very much about our future, about our... We're not going to be in 10 years. We're not going to be alive in 10 years, mm. or, uh, this kind of thing. And, and with that, I think we're warned to trust. Just stop ruminating on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trust God now, and trust God for the future. Right. Don't go to fortune tellers, or don't try to... Or or figure out your horoscope, or, yeah. or you know... I
0: think it's it's uh,
1: not for you to know. <laughs>
0: it is there in Genesis 2 as well, the idea of a limit on curiosity. Because, hmm. you know, God says you can eat of any tree in the garden, which is in essence saying, like, just go and explore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, look at all this rich diversity and, yep. and fruit and everything, and animals and plants, and just go and explore it all. Be curious. Mm-hmm. But there's one tree, just don't... Yeah. Just, just <laughs> don't, don't Yeah. don't forget all the others. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so maybe you know you can frame sin yeah. as like an unhealthy hmm. curiosity.
3: Hmm.
0: Which is exactly the what the serpent invites them to do mm-hmm. yeah. you know, oh what would it yeah. What would it be like if you were God? Yeah. 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 What would it be like if you were God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is just giving you an imagination. Sure,
1: I think sometimes if if we had if we had like some sort of concept of the beauty and diversity of creation, into which Adam and Eve were sent, and just all the yeses that were in it.
3: Yes, yeah,
1: you know, if we had more of a imaginative picture of what that might have been like, the, the. Eating from the one tree would just look more and more absurd to us. <laughs> it's like, what was? But yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. On one level, I want to articulate very carefully. I mean, I think I think you're onto something there. But I also want to say, you know, some people say God is just smacking them for being curious. Like, what's so wrong with being curious? They just wanted to like try something. Come on, so it's not it's not an innocent curiosity. It's it's a usurping. <laughs> it's an attempt to usurp. Um, God's role is being the one that decides, you know? Um, and, uh, who gets to say what's good and what's evil? Um, and so I think, I think there's a, there's a, what sometimes feels like a willful misunderstanding of the text when people say God is just trying to suppress knowledge. They just wanted to know something. And, uh, that was a threat to God. What a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's obviously there's much more to it than that, but but um, but yeah, but <clears throat> but that's not to say that curiosity didn't have anything to do with it. Oh gosh, yeah. What what would happen if we did that? Um, and of course the devil immediately lies and twists. It's, it's um, you know, did God say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? You know, you're not gonna. You sh- won't surely die. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Curiosity is just, in the, like, every time you sort of conceive of sin in your heart and you play through the options in your head, mm-hmm. there is a, I mean, you might just be, I might just be in the, in the room, but.
1: No. <laughs> like, there's a
0: playing out of, oh, if I did that and only that much, then probably this. Yeah.
1: It's, in, it's 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 it's, it's the twisted imagination too. Yeah. Like in yeah. Your, yeah. Uh,
0: in your mind, so it can be definitely. Yeah. I don't think curiosity is something that can be that can like. Yeah. As I said, just like free will. No. It is actually a moral.
1: There's a moral and an immoral. Yeah. Way Absolutely, John was saying it's a moral and immoral way of being curious. It is, like like Dick was saying, it's not a no good thing of, of that God has given us exists in a in a moral vacuum. Now it's all within a framework of of what God has said is good is good and not good. And and so um, uh, to 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 marry an idea of curiosity with a very contemporary idea of absolute freedom is what we need. Is just a train wreck. You think of that, like curiosity, curiosity with no parameters placed on it, Um, disaster. I think I'm going to wrap it up because I'm getting a little tired. But um, thank you so much for all of you. you.